You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, hey, thank you so much. It is great to be with you guys. It's been fun for me um, just to hear a little bit about Sun Grove and um, just the amazing things that God is doing in this church as well as I've just been hearing about the amazing things that God is doing through this church, not only here in Elk Grove, but all around the world. And so um, it really is a privilege for me to be with you um, this morning as uh, Pastor Dave is up at the men's retreat. So as he said, uh, the deal is I got to know Dave uh, over 20 years ago when we were uh, students in seminary together out in Colorado. We were the two young California guys that came out and started um, seminary together. And so I was thinking... You know, I'd like to tell like some secret story that nobody knows about Dave, and I probably have some, but here's the deal. Uh, he really is the same guy now that he was then. That same kind of bundle of positive energy is the same guy that he was um, back then. As he mentioned, we played a little volleyball together, so he's definitely um, is not as good at volleyball or uh, can jump as high as he used to, um, but even Back then, those of us who knew Dave uh, knew that he had a heart for God and a heart for people that were just going to make him um, an incredible pastor. And so it's really a privilege that he asked me to come up and speak today um, here at Sun Grove Church as you guys are uh, um, gathered together here. So I was thinking, I wanted to tell you a little bit about myself. So uh, as you heard, I've been a pastor just down the road at First Baptist Church in Lodi. And so I was thinking I wanted to tell you something about myself, something interesting that would help you kind of get to know me. But come on, how interesting can a pastor's life be, right? And so every once in a while, I'll have someone ask me a question. They'll say, hey, when are you, are you going to ever write a book? And I, I don't think I'm ever going to write a book. But if I ever wrote a book, the only thing I could really put in a, a book is interesting and funny stuff that happens at like weddings and funerals and baptisms and that kind of stuff because I, it's not a bestseller, but it's my life, right? I'm, I'm a pastor. That's what we do. And so I'm kind of that bad pastor that almost roots for something funny to happen at certain occasions. So for instance, uh, at a wedding, I've had a bride pass out, which is awesome, not completely uncommon. Uh, I have had a bridesmaid throw up in the middle of a ceremony slightly less awesome. But the, the wedding I was thinking about was a few years ago. Um, I did a wedding over in Santa Cruz, and it was an outdoor wedding, a beautiful setting. And when the guests came in, everybody was given a little box. And in this little box was a butterfly. And they had this cool idea that at the end of the ceremony, after we pronounced them husband and wife, they were going to release these butterflies. And you know, it was going to be this great celebration. Well, here's the problem. We're doing this wedding over in Santa Cruz. And while we're uh, performing the wedding, the fog rolls in. It literally dropped about 15 degrees from the start of the wedding to the end. And so it came time. I pronounced them husband and wife. Everybody opened the box and it was too cold for the butterflies to fly, right? And so they're just like flopping around on the ground and in the bride's hair. We all thought it was hilarious. The bride's mom was less thinking it was hilarious. But the story that I really wanted to tell you about was actually uh, my very first funeral. And I know this may seem a little awkward to tell a story about uh, a funeral in kind of a lighthearted way, but trust me, even the family that this happened to was able to laugh about it eventually. They weren't able to laugh about it right at first, but eventually they were. So this was the very first funeral I ever did, not long out of seminary. And it was a tragic, uh, very sudden death. And so it was a, it was a hard 
service. And so we did the memorial service at the church, and then we went out to the cemetery where we were going to have a graveside service. And if you've ever been at a graveside service out at the cemetery, you know that everybody gathers around and they put the casket on this metal stand kind of up above the the hole where they're going to put the the casket down into the hole at the end of the the service. And so I'm up there, I'm doing this service, and everybody's grieving and really crying, really um, struggling with this, all except for one person in the family. The little granddaughter must have been about three years old. And this little girl is kind of toddling around, everybody's crying, nobody's watching her. The only person who was watching her was me, right? I saw the whole thing happen. It was like it was in slow motion because this little girl is wandering around and she's picking daisies and doing her thing, and she toddles up towards the casket. And she toddles up towards the hole and she falls into the open grave. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, it was terrible. And so the people from the cemetery, they actually still remember me when I go out there. They're like, hey, you're the guy, the girl fell in the hole. Um, yeah, that was me. You've never seen the guys from the seminary, our cemetery jump so fast. They jump down into the hole. They grab this little girl out. She was okay. If she wasn't, I probably wouldn't have been telling you this story. Uh, she was okay, but they lifted her up out of the grave, and they put her on the ground, and she ran over into her dad's arms. And so, you know, everybody was fine except for me, right? Because I'm the guy up there leading the service. And what do you say at that point, right? So I just said... Let's close in prayer and go have lunch. And that was the end of the service and, and on we went. But I share that story with you because in a very real way that describes something that's happened in my life and in the life of, of many of you, I'm sure, that have gathered here um, this morning. In Psalm 40, David talks about uh, that in a time of, of struggle that he cried out to God and he says, I waited patiently on the Lord and God came close to me and he heard my cry. And then this is what David says. David says, and, and God lifted me up out of the pit. Literally, he lifted me up out of a grave and he set my feet on a rock. He set my feet on solid ground. And honestly, that's what God has done in my life. As a 17-year-old, I was going nowhere fast. I was concerned pretty much with me, myself, and I. And some people came close to me, began to tell me about a God who loved me, about a, a Savior that died for me. And literally, it was as if they lifted me up, and God lifted me up out of the pit, and he set my feet on a rock. It transformed my life transformed my life, not only the life that I live today, but it transformed my eternity. In fact, the reason I'm here to share with you this morning is because what God has done in my life. So, well, hey, uh, I want to invite you to uh, take your Bibles and grab your message notes, and we are going to be in a passage in Acts chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to Acts chapter 15, where our message is going to come from today. And in Acts chapter 15, I want to introduce you to a conflict, a conflict that took place in the early church that you will almost certainly never face living in 21st century America. And yet this conflict that you will most certainly never face in 21st century America actually happens to not only be one of the most important things that happens in the book of Acts but the reality is, is what we're going to look at today, while the circumstances are different, couldn't be more relevant to your life, couldn't be more relevant to a church like yours here today, perhaps in the 21st century America more than ever. 
Because candidly, as you know, uh, this is a divided time. In fact, this is probably the most divided time in our nation, at least in my lifetime. There are families, communities, churches that are struggling and facing conflict and division with one another. And yet in this situation that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 15, it's almost as if it's a roadmap for how a church and how the people of God should come together, even in times of conflict, and follow after the heart of God. And that's what they do. So at the heart of this conflict that we're going to look at this morning is really a very, very important question. Kind of the core of the question that we need to talk about this morning is, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to be a Christian? Now, most of you, if I were to ask you that, would have some opinion on that. And you would say, well, I know what it means. It means to be a follower of Christ. It means to be someone who's placed my faith in Jesus. And by his grace, I've received his mercy. I've received his forgiveness. And I would agree with all of that. And yet, here's my question that I want to ask you because people want to know the answer to this question. What else? What else? What else does a person have to do to be welcome into the, this Jesus club? Right? How does a, a person really get accepted into a church like this? What rules are there? What traditions are there? How holy do I have to be? How together does my life have to be for me to be welcomed in to this thing called the church? Who really gets in to the church? And as church people, how welcoming should we be? Who should we be welcoming and who should we be guarding against? And I know this issue of who gets accepted in a church is very, very important because I imagine that there are some of you here today who perhaps stayed away from the church maybe for years and years because you saw this issue handled poorly. I'm sure many of you have friends, children, family members that you wish were here today and yet they have walked away from the church. They've walked away in many of cases from God after at least perceiving a, a message that, that left them disillusioned, angry, hurt because they perceived a message maybe from a pastor or a priest or a Sunday school teacher or someone else who said this, God loves you and you can be a part of our church if, right? If, if you get your act together, if you clean up, if you dress different, if you act like us, if you stop this, if you start that, if you listen to this, if you don't listen to that, and on and on the list goes. And the issue of who gets accepted into a church handled poorly is why literally there are millions of people, not only here in the United States, but all around the world who say, you know what, I believe in God. I believe in, in Jesus. I think I even need Jesus in my life, but I don't think I would ever find him in a church. And that is not okay. And so let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 15 and let's dig in uh, to this situation. So Acts chapter 15, let me start by just giving you a little bit of the context. It's important to know what's going on in the story in the book of Acts, which describes the beginning of the early church. So Acts 15 is kind of the, the middle of the book of Acts. And what is happening is that the church is growing like wildfire. Right? By Acts 15, the good news of Jesus is starting to expand at last into the Gentile world. 
And so in Acts 1, Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, tells his disciples, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to be my witnesses first to Jerusalem, which is where they were, the, kind of the beginning of the church in Jerusalem. Then you'll go to Judea and Samaria, kind of the regions pushing out. And then eventually you will take the good news and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That seemed unfathomable to them at that, at that time. But that's exactly what was happening. By the time you get to Acts 15, the good news is going out to the ends of the earth. And it's awesome. It's amazing. And yet it also is making some people very nervous. Why were people getting nervous about this? Because as people were being added to the church, they found that they were different than the people that were there at the church in the beginning. And so people that were coming to faith in places like Antioch and Lystra and Derby and some of these other cities were just as likely to be Gentiles, people who were steeped in Roman culture or Greek culture, than they were to be Jews who were the start of the church and were followers of the law of Moses. And so I want you to think about this, and this is in your message notes. Try to imagine that you were one of the Jews that made up the original church there in Jerusalem. And so you were raised with a, a strict, conservative Jewish background. You held out hope for kind of a nationalistic advancement of God's kingdom uh, into Israel. And, and so then uh, Jesus comes, he's the Jewish Messiah, um, he dies, he's resurrected from the grave, and then you have the start of the church in Acts chapter 2. And just try to put yourself in the shoes of one of those nationalistic Jews as this is what happens with the message in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and he comes with wind and fire. And there are people from all over the world, and they hear the message. But here's the thing. They don't hear the message in Hebrew but they hear the message in their own language. People all over the world hear this message, not in the Jewish language, but in their own language. Well, then the church starts to expand in Jerusalem. It's this beautiful thing. Uh, but by the time you get to Acts chapter 6 and 7, persecution starts to take place. And so really they're forced out of Jerusalem uh, into the rest of the world. But the, the gospel begins to spread into places like Judea and Samaria, where many uh, enemies had been, as you know, about the Samaritans. By the time you get to Acts chapter 8, an Ethiopian an African comes to faith in Christ and is baptized. Acts chapter 9, the leader of the persecution, the leader of the opposition movement. He was a Jew, but he was someone who was opposed to them. A guy by the name of Saul is converted. Acts chapter 10, a Roman official by the name of Cornelius. This is someone uh, who was completely different in his background than the Jews there in the church at Jerusalem. And Cornelius and his whole family is converted. Acts chapter 11, an amazing chapter, beautiful chapter. The church is planted in a place called Antioch of Syria. So this is now about 200, 250 miles north of Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 11, this church in Antioch becomes the first multicultural church. And so for the first time, you have Jews and Greeks, Gentiles and Jews, worshiping side by side. Many people thought that would never happen, but the Holy Spirit begins to work at the church in Antioch. And then this rebel church in Antioch, whose leadership is made up of both Greeks and Jews, decides that they're going to push it even farther. And they're going to start sending out the first missionaries that are going to start to take the good news out to the ends of the earth. And so they select Paul and Barnabas, and they send them out. And they go 
and they start to, to take this message all the way to all these far-reaching cities. Now, Paul and Barnabas follow the pattern that when they go to a city, almost always they go first to the, to the synagogue. And many Jews in these different cities do believe in Jesus and are converted. But we also see by Acts 13, 14, you see more and more Gentiles are knocking on the door and saying, how do we get into this Jesus club? How do we become a part of this movement? So meanwhile, back at the church in Jerusalem. So as I said, the church in Jerusalem was the largest, was the most influential church at that time. It was also kind of the, the mother church. It's where it all began. And the Jerusalem church, as we've been saying, was made up almost exclusively of Jewish converts. So these were people who were Jewish by background as well as by practice. So they had seen the resurrected Jesus, many of them had, They'd experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were experiencing this fellowship in the church. These great things were happening. And yet their understanding and their assumption was that new Christians, when they wanted to join the movement, that they would have to become Jewish, right? Because after all, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So if someone wanted to convert to Christianity, first they had to follow the laws of Moses, especially the law of of circumcision. And so that was the common belief there in Jerusalem. Now, when we think about the law of Moses, I don't know what you think about. Maybe you just think of the Ten Commandments and you think, hey, that's not big of a deal to, to follow the Ten Commandments. Who wouldn't want to, you know, do those things? But when you talk about the law of Moses, you're talking about more than just those Ten Commandments. In fact, there's 613 laws in that first five books of the Bible that we call the, the Torah, the Hebrew uh, scripture. And on top of those 613 laws, there were hundreds and hundreds of additional laws that they put on top of those things to make sure that everybody was following the laws correctly. So as you know, if you've been around the Bible a little bit, this, uh, this law had to do with all kinds of things. It had to do with worship. It had to do with food that you ate. It had to do with Sabbath. It had to do with your family. It had to do with work. Here's what you need to know, is that law of Moses, that Jewish law, at almost every turn seemed to be into direct opposition with the Roman culture, right? So just an example of this, I was reading about a common foods or favorite foods in um, in uh, Rome around the time of the first century. And so the three most popular foods in Rome at the time that the church was starting to spread. Uh, the third most popular was oysters. That's on the unclean list. The second most popular was shrimp. That was on the unclean list. The most popular food in the Roman world at that time was pork sausages. Pork sausages were at the heart of the unclean list. And if you're Growing up, following the law of Moses from a Jewish home, not only were those foods bad and repulsive, but people that ate those foods were bad and repulsive. And now they were saying, we want to come and be a part. We want to sit next to you in church. We want to go to the church potluck together. How is this going to happen? 
But perhaps the biggest issue that they faced was this issue of circumcision, right? Because all the way back to the time of Abraham, then confirmed in the law of Moses, if a person wanted to join the family of God, all of the men had to be circumcised. If you wanted to be a part of that religion, men, you've got to be circumcised. So here's the deal. All these people are coming to faith and they're like, that's great. We would love to have you join our church. It just takes a little surgery. Just, just this little procedure. We'll make an appointment for you right over there, and then you come join our church. And suddenly the new members class became filled with only women and children, right? <laughs> and I think I'm joking about that, but I'm not joking about the fact that there is a crisis on their hands. What? is going to happen. Well, what happened changed history. What happened is the reason that we're sitting here today this morning. And there's a message in it that God wants you and wants me to hear even this morning. So let's take a look at Acts chapter uh, 15. We're actually going to begin at the very end of chapter 14, verse 27, where it says this, Acts 14, 27. It says, on arriving there, they gathered the church together. So this is talking about Paul and Barnabas. They'd been out on their missionary journey, and now they were coming back to this church at Antioch. And they gathered there together, and they reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now some men came down from Judea, that was the, the church in Jerusalem, and they came down to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with other believers to go, to, uh, go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. And so the Jerusalem church, as we said, was saying, hey, to all the Gentiles, you have to follow the law uh, of Moses and you have to be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas say, hey, wait a minute. We've been out sharing the message and that's not the message that we've been giving to them. And so they decide that they need to have this big meeting together down in Jerusalem. And so Paul and Barnabas head down to meet with Peter and James at the others at the church in Jerusalem. This is what becomes known as the Jerusalem Council. Really, every Christian should know about the Jerusalem Council. It is that important what's going to take place there. And what they're going to do is they're going to struggle together. They're this new movement, and they're asking, who gets in? Who are we going to welcome? How wide do we spread this circle? What's God's heart on this? And so the church comes together, and they have this big, important meeting. And th these were not easy issues. These were difficult issues that they were struggling with. And the reality is, it seems like any time you have issues in a, a church family, they become kind of emotional issues. I don't know if you've ever noticed this as a pastor. I definitely notice it. Because we get emotionally attached to our faith, which is a good thing. We get emotionally attached to our church, which is a good thing. The problem is, because we have this emotional attachment, and because many of us chose our church based on these deeply held convictions, when things start to change, when things start to go a little differently than we think they should, it just becomes this very emotional, very challenging issue. 
In fact, I, I remember earlier this summer, I heard about a church fight. Maybe it was on the national news. Maybe you saw it too. It took place back in Georgia. And there was this little church that was having a conflict. And they were trying to decide, should they fire the pastor or not fire the pastor? And they couldn't agree on what to do. And so they got together and they were going to have this big church business meeting. And so they got together and at that meeting, nobody could, could agree. And finally, things got so heated that it led to an actual fight. A fight broke out in the church, not between two people, but literally dozens of people on the, uh, all, from all over the church got into this big brawl with one another. They had to call the cops to break up this church meeting. Can you even imagine? So I thought to myself, you know, I remember this story, but I couldn't remember the details, so I wanted to share it with you, so I went on Google, and I'm, I Googled so I could get the details about this, de this, this fight, and I think I entered in um, church fight, cops called. Here's the problem. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of these examples of church disputes that actually led to fights where the cops got called. In fact, I've got to share one with you because it's just too good to, to just not uh, to pass over. But there was a church up in the Seattle area, and they had a big conflict because they had what was called a congregational care committee. And the congregational care committee decided for the church that they were going to stop serving donuts at the church. Yeah. Right? For years they had coffee and donuts, but the Congregational Care Committee decided, hey, we can't serve unhealthy foods at church. That is not right. And so they decided no more coffee, no more donuts. And this church, pretty large church, had a kind of a coffee bar like you do and you came in here. And uh, they decided, well, we're going to get rid of the coffee bar and the donuts and we're going to replace it with a, wait for it, a smoothie station. Right? So you came in, there was going to be a smoothie station, which is all right. That's cool. Literally, people started throwing things at one another in the church lobby until the cops had to be called. And the point I'm trying to make is, is don't you see, church issues, faith issues, strongly held belief issues can be very heated. And, and on the one hand, that's good because we want to have an emotional connection. But on the other hand, it led to problems. And we're not talking in Jerusalem about coffee and donuts and smoothies. We're talking about the future of the church. And we're talking about who gets in and who we exclude, who we say welcome to, and who we push away. What is going to happen at the Jerusalem Council? Let's pick the story back up in verse 5 of Acts chapter 15. It says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and they said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Right? So that's their line. You've got to obey the laws. Then the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and he addressed them. And Peter said this, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on their, the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? We do not know. We believe it is, not, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so the first person who gets to stand up and speak at this Jerusalem council is Peter. 
And Peter stands up and he gives two main arguments and these are listed in your notes. The first thing he says is we need to be careful with all these rules that we're putting on people because remember, God doesn't discriminate based on outward things. Instead, God sees people's hearts, right? And we would agree with that, right? God, God sees people's hearts. Here's the problem. God can see people's hearts. We can't, right? We can't see what's in a person's heart. All we can see is it's what we see, right? All we can see is the outside. All we can see is how they're dressed. All we can see is how long their hair is. What tattoos do they have? What piercings do they have? What tattoos do they not have? What's the color of their skin? What accent do they speak with? Where do they live? What do they drive? All these outward things. And Peter says, no, God doesn't see those things. God sees hearts. And I don't know about you, but aren't you glad that when God called you, he didn't look at your outside stuff. He didn't look at the issues that you had in your life. He looked at your heart and he said, come and follow me. I was thinking a little bit about this. I was thinking about the story of Peter, right? Peter's the one who's speaking. Remember when Jesus first calls Peter? Peter is a mess. Peter is this unschooled fisherman that nobody else chose, chose to be one of his disciples. Peter has got an anger problem. Peter talks too much. Peter's got all these things. And Jesus sees Peter and he's fishing and he doesn't say, hey, Peter, go work on your anger issue. Get some of that stuff together and then come and follow me. What does he say? He says, Peter, come and follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. In other words, he says, I, I know there's stuff that needs to happen in your life. Come and follow me, and then we'll begin to work on those things in your life. And aren't you glad that's what he did? Well, the second thing that Peter says is he says, we need to be careful and not put a burden on the Gentiles with laws that even the Jews could never fully obey. And I think uh, when Peter says this, I think of the story when Jesus is with the woman that's caught in adultery. And remember, there's a crowd gathered around and they've got stones and they're going to stone this woman. And by the law, she deserved it. She committed adultery. And, and so they were going to throw these stones at her. And yet Jesus looks at all of this crowd. And remember, he knows the answer to this question because he can see their hearts. And he looks at them and he says, hey, which of you is without sin? Because if any of you here are without sin, you go ahead, you rock throwers, and throw the first stone. And one by one, because God knew their hearts, they dropped their stones and they walked away. And that's the same kind of thing that Peter does there at the church of Jerusalem. He, he says, hey, you guys, he says, I know you. We grew up together. We're a part of the church together. I know that none of us could follow the law perfectly. None of our parents could follow the law perfectly. So why would we put a burden on people that we ourselves can't follow? He says instead, when it starts to ask the question, who are we going to invite into this church? We need to be led by the same grace that God showed to us. And on that day, I think Peter took this giant step forward to be in the fisher of men that Jesus knew he could be when Jesus saw Peter's heart and called him. Well, we need to keep moving. The, the next person to stand up after Peter speaks, he gives kind of one of the longer speeches, but the next person that stands up are Paul and Barnabas. I'm now in Acts chapter 15, verse 12, and it says this, the whole assembly became silent. There was that kind of holy hush that came on the room. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. 
And so Peter kind of argued from emotion. Peter argued from kind of this logical thing. Paul and Bartimaeus stand up, and what they say to the Jerusalem council is, is they just present the facts. They say, hey, all we know is we've been going out into these cities where people are different than us, and God is doing wonders. And people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And he said, it's almost as if we're saying, why are we even having this discussion? God is bringing the people in, whether we want him to or not, whether we get on board with this or not, God is doing his work. And then the last person to stand up and speak at the Jerusalem Council is, is James. James really is the leader of the church. He's the, the pastor, if you will. And James, remember, was the half-brother of Jesus. So this is Mary and Joseph's son. And, and, and I just wonder... Do you think James looked like Jesus? Do you think their mannerisms were similar? Do you think their voice was similar? They were half-brothers at least. Well, I don't know about this, but I know that James stood up, and this is what he says in verse 13. He says, when they finished, James spoke up, and he said, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The word of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. So he's going to quote scripture that God from the beginning wanted to, to see Gentiles come to him. And he says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. And the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all of the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who, who uh, does these things that have been known for ages. And then this is what he says in verse 19. You want to look at this. James says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Can I just share that statement with you one more time? That statement changed history. Most of us are gathered here today because the people struggled together and they found the heart of God on what it meant to reach out in their world. This is what James says, it is my decision that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And what courageous leadership James takes on that day. It was certainly not a popular decision that he made, especially there in Jerusalem, but it was, as we said, after the heart of God. And so he says, we shouldn't make it difficult. But then in verse 20, he says this, instead, let's just do this. Let's write him a letter telling them to abstain from foods polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And so all of those commands that he had to, uh, to mention there all had to do with worship at the pagan temple. But what James does there is remember those 613 laws plus all the hundreds and hundreds of other laws? He boils it down to one sentence. And notice what's not on the list. Circumcision. Circumcision isn't on the list. And so you get to verse 30, and it says this. It says, so some men were sent off, and the men from the church went down to Antioch, where they were gathered the church together, and they delivered this letter. And the people read it, and they were glad for its encouraging message. I bet they were. You see, God's heart was not for just this little group. God's heart was for the world and God's heart for Sun Grove Church and God's heart for your life is not a little thing. God's heart is for the world 
And we should not make it too difficult for people that are far from God, that are wanting to come close to God. What are the barriers that we put between people and them coming and finding God? Well, our time is, is pretty much up, but I want to just share a couple points of application. This story, as I said, is really important. You could, could talk about it for weeks and weeks, but let me just share a couple points of application. And the first one is, is we as Christians have to resist a pull. And the pull is toward insiders and away from outsiders. And what I mean by this is it's so easy as a church to focus on the people that are already here. And not just as a church, but in life. You want to focus on the, the insiders, the people that you know. And we have to resist the pull from that. We want to circle the wagons. We want to say we want people like us, people that do things like we do. But you know what happens to churches that only focus on the insiders? And by the way, Churches all over the world spend tons of their energy, focus the vast majority of their resources and energy and time on doing things for the people that are already inside the church. And while the people that are already inside the church are important, we've got to resist the pull towards insiders and away from outsiders. And you know what happens to churches that only focus on the people that are already here? They shrivel up and die. And you know what else happens? to people that only focus on people that are like them and they don't focus on the outsiders. They miss the power of God. They miss the wonder of seeing someone who was far from God and maybe they were different from them, but the wonder is God calls them and they come and they join in and God begins to work in their life. When uh, my, my daughter, I've got a 19-year-old daughter, and when she was a little girl, she loved to watch this video. And why do kids do this? They want to watch the same video over and over again, right? So one of the ones that we watched hundreds of times at our house when she was a little girl was this Cinderella movie. And it wasn't the, the real Cinderella. It was like an offshoot of Cinderella. So the story was after Cinderella had already become a princess, and now she and Prince Charming were, were, were ruling in the, the castle. And so Cinderella, part of her responsibilities were the first thing she had to do was she had to plan a ball. She had to plan this, this party. And so people from the castle come and they tell her, Cinderella, this is how you plan a party here at the castle. And this is who you invite. And this is what you do. And this is the way we've always done it before. And this is how it all goes. And it's driving Cinderella crazy because remember Cinderella, she was an outsider, right? She didn't come from inside. She came from outside. And so they're telling her, that, you know, it's got to be for all the people that are already here. And it's just driving Cinderella crazy. And there was this line, kind of the key line in the movie that I heard hundreds and hundreds of times. My daughters used to say it time and time again. Cinderella looks out on her kingdom and she yells to her servant. She yells, open the gates. Open the gates. And my little daughter would run around saying that all the time. Open the gates. And what happens in this silly little cartoon movie is they open up the gates. And what happens to Cinderella's ball? Suddenly people are pouring in from all places, people from all over the kingdom. And it reminds me of a story that Jesus tells about a wedding banquet that he wants to plan. And Jesus says to the servants, he says this, he says, go out. And so the servants went out into the streets and they gathered all the people that they could find. Matthew 22 says they gathered the good and the bad. And they didn't give them a test and say, get your act together and then come to the wedding hall. They said, we invite you in to come and meet this Savior who's changing our life. And the good and the bad came in and the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
Second point of application is we need to resist the pull away from law or towards law and away from grace, right? Now, the difficulty is when you come to a sermon like this and we talk about the grace of God, we do understand that the law of God is, in, is important, right? There are moral imperatives to following Christ. But what I want you to remember today is the order that that takes place. First, Jesus calls the people to follow. Then he begins to work on them. Then he begins to transform their lives. And when we can resist that pull to, to feel like we're gonna please God by following the rules, by feeling like we're gonna get our act together and then we're gonna come to God, we're gonna miss what God wants to do. And God wants to do great things in Sun Grove Church. As you open the gates, as you open the gates of your life, as you open the gates of this church and your reach goes farther and farther and you see the wonders of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this amazing story. It's different than what we would ever deal with in some ways, but it's exactly what we would deal with. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that we would be people who would live an open the gates sort of life and we would not be small thinking, that we would not try to circle the wagons, but we would see your heart for this community, for neighbors that are different than us, from family members that you're calling us to, to reach out to, to a world, Lord, that needs you so much. God, we, your people, want to follow you. Thank you for the courage and the example of the apostles who went before us, who sought your heart. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.